Why don't you open to Philippians chapter 4, please? Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. And the message entitled, Rejoice and Be Gracious. Paul gave to the Philippians a general exhortation to follow godly examples as evidence of ongoing Christian maturity in chapter 3, verse 17 to 21. Paul has dealt with a specific exhortation for Christian unity, characterized by three things in our last study of verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4. There we saw that Christian unity can exist only in depending on Jesus by believers in verse 1. Christian unity can be disrupted also by carnal believers in verse 2. And Christian unity can be restored by believers in verse 3. Paul will continue to exhort the Philippians with some very specific commands that will still deal with unity focusing on specific Christian virtues that are to be experienced by every believer from verse 4 down to 9. The motive is love for Christ resulting in our love for the brethren, as he has said in chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. God initiates, we respond. He loved us first, therefore we love him in response. The vertical is always first, as we've told you often. Our relationship with God, then the horizontal plane, our relationship with each other, just as the two tables of the law. The first one's vertical, the second one's horizontal, even as the lawyer asked Jesus, uh, which was the greatest commandment, and Jesus laid it out. Uh, Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, reflecting on the two tablets of the law. 1 John 4.26 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so it's very important. That doesn't mean that we just agree with people that are wrong in scripture or in heresy. No, we confront them, but we don't hate them. We deal with the issues, but we don't hate them. Now, this was Paul's prayer for them, remember, in chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Their growth in quality of love, there in verse 9 of chapter 1. Their growth in love for Christ in verse 10, and their growth in love for man in verse 11. So he, he's kind of hit it from different angles in, uh, as he moves on in the, in the scriptures here. Paul now exhorts the believer to yield to God in order to manifest virtues of the spirit life. And here in our text, there are three. Let me read verse 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so the virtues here of the spirit life are three. First, The Christian is to be known for having joy, verse 4. Secondly, the Christian is to be known for being gracious, the first part of 5. And thirdly, the Christian is to be known for expecting the Lord's coming, the second half of 5. And so we begin with the Christian is to be known for having joy, 
Look at four. The Apostle Paul charged the believer to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul has indicated an order here to be to the believer at Philippi. This is not a suggestion. It's another uh, a command. The word rejoice is in the present imperative command. You as a parent give commands to your children. Sometimes you have conversation and you suggest do some things, but there's sometimes a very, very direct, purposeful commands for your child to follow. The word rejoice simply means to be glad. Uh, this is not um, a command for the few. And so it's for all believers, not for the spiritual elite, but for all who have been born again. We must understand that the Bible is the same um, for you and myself. We have the same text. We follow the same Lord. We are given the same promises. We are given the same uh, standards. No one is to be any different at all. Literally says, keep on rejoicing in the Greek. It is a key word and theme for the epistle, as you know. It's found in chapter 1, 1, 2, 3, 4 times. Chapter 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 times. Chapter 3, 1 time. 4, 1, 4, 4, 4, 10. In two forms, joy and rejoice. It's key. Now, the theme of joy and rejoicing is really regarding Paul. He's in prison, okay? And he's commanding them to follow his example, literally. Rejoicing and joy is a, um, a product of the Holy Spirit, not of the natural man, as you know. The natural man is usually centered on happiness. In fact, there's a whole philosophy of being happy. There's songs today of being happy and, you know, psychology. They want you to be happy. Well, happiness is, is based upon your outward circumstance, your situation, how you feel. Um, but joy has to do with who you are in Christ and who is in you. It has nothing to do with those other things. Um, the command is not dependent on their situation or circumstance that often robs the believer of their joy and ability to rejoice due to the difficulty, even the suffering, because remember, Paul is suffering in prison. The majority of the church has always suffered. The majority of the church today, tonight, suffers in the world. And the same command is for them. Rejoice always. Sometimes we just culturalize it and we see the church in a, in a tube as we are just here. But it, we are really the exception to the rule, the way the church has existed throughout times. The command to rejoice does not imply the Philippians were not rejoicing, but in fact were rejoicing to an extent. So he's not rebuking them for it, but they do have some problems with unity and different things, and they think of themselves a little higher than others, and, and that robs us of a lot of joy. When you get your eyes on yourself, you turn inward, you get depressed. You look upwards to the Lord, you, you get some joy. And that's the whole focus of our society, is this love for self, this self-esteem. 
um, this thinking of yourself more highly than we ought to think, and it brings more problems than, than it does solutions. Um, this is our culture today, and has been for many years. Now notice Paul indicated this fear of the believer's rejoicing is in the Lord. Paul is addressing those individuals that have been born again, not unbelievers. Um, you never ask a non-believer to do what the Bible tells you. They're dead. You have a better chance to go to the cemetery and look down the cadaver and say, stand up. Not going to happen. Okay, so we don't lay this standard and this, uh, these commands on non-believers. Paul indicates this fear is in the Lord. Those who have repented of their sins, those who have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, just as you have come to a living relationship at a set point in time, you repented, you asked Christ to forgive you, you began to walk with him, you began to grow, to learn, to live it out, to tune your ear to his voice. Paul used other phrases that are synonymous with the phrase in the Lord. The believer is to live in Christ Jesus. The believer is to live in Christ. Paul used three faces. These three faces that appear repeatedly through the epistle. Nine times in chapter 1. Eleven times in chapter 2. Fourteen times in chapter 3. Ten times in chapter 4. A total of 55 times. Only four chapters. Do you think he wants us to be in the Lord, in Christ, in Jesus Christ? That's the sphere in which you and I are able to live the life of the Spirit and that which pleases God. You get out of that sphere, you're trusting in yourself. You're looking to yourself. Paul, in using the phrase, and the Lord speaks of the source distinct from the person in the unity with Christ. Joy speaks of the believer's love for Christ due to God's love for him again. When you read Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is agape love. The first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. One fruit, agape. The first manifestation of agape, joy. And then everything else that follows. Our joy is based on our fellowship with God. In each other, First John chapter one verse three through four says, and this is your joy is full that you have fellowship with God and with each other, completely, the vertical again and the horizontal. Notice Paul indicated the extent of the command to rejoice. Only when you feel good. No, he says always. Only when it's convenient. Only when you want to. That's how some Christians live. When everything is going well, oh man, obedient, whistling, skipping down the street, but something goes wrong and it's a whole different matter. The word always simply means evermore at all times. In times of testings, in times of temptations, in times of difficult circumstances, in times of harsh situations, 
times when we don't understand what is going on, why it's happening. Times when people would do or say or bring things upon us that we don't understand why someone would do that. It's during these times as we turn to the Lord. The one giving the command is Paul. He is at Rome in prison, full of joy and rejoicing for them in the Lord. He was not asking of them what he had not been a doer himself. If you read the Gospels, Jesus never asked of his disciples anything that he first didn't do. Paul is the very same way. In fact, when we get down to verse 9 of the chapter, he's going to say, that what you've seen and, and me do, and the God of peace will be with you. And so it's always a good principle for you as a parent or as a Christian or as a brother and sister in Christ that we first live out what we tell others that they should be living. Um, as a husband cannot give um, what he doesn't have and he must first be partakers of his fruit, as uh, Timothy tells us. He was trusting Christ as you and I are supposed to now notice the Apostle Paul here confirm what he just expressed to the Philippians. Again, I will say rejoice. He's a spiritual father. If you're a parent, you know exactly what Paul is doing. These are his children. Paul declared this in an emphatic manner. The word again indicates the repetition of this action. If you're a parent again, when you want to get the attention of your child, you repeat things. And if you really want to get the attention, you say, look at me. And you repeat it so he sees your lips. It's very purposeful. It's emphatic. Paul is their spiritual parent. Very concerned over them. And the phrase there, I will say, is an indicative future active this time. He will decidedly say this again. This was purposeful and for their good. You as a parent say things to your kids as your parents did to you and they knew that what they were telling you was absolutely the best for you but you didn't like it and you just look and you're starting to roll your and you say look at me and, and they say it and even you didn't believe it as they were telling you because it didn't make sense to you. But as time moved on, and as you've grown, you know, when you were younger, it's amazing how dumb your parents were and how smart you were. And then all of a sudden, you came to a point in your life where you realized how smart your parents were and how dumb you were. Hmm. Paul repeated the exact command. The word rejoice is another imperative command here in the present tense. This was to be ongoing in their lives. They had to have remembered when Paul and Silas came to Philippi and they were beat, imprisoned, and how they rejoiced in the Lord and sang songs at midnight while the jailer was concerned when the earthquake came and 
afraid that all the prisoners were gone. They had to remember that. There was not very much joy between Iodia and Syntyche of verse 2 that we saw last time. The true companion was to rejoice in helping the two women to get reconciled, to restore unity and joy in their lives. Again, joy is synonymous with God's love that is not dependent on circumstances, feelings, and emotions. To love is a choice, not a feeling. It's a choice of obedience or disobedience in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do with your feelings or emotions. The natural man, love is based on emotions and feelings. And that's why there's so much destruction in our lives when we don't walk in the Lord. Jesus is the greatest illustration to this point. He says, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in Hebrews 12, 2. Do you think Jesus felt like being crucified? You think he felt like being blasphemed? You think he felt like being separated from the Father for the first time from all eternity? Of course not. His love for us was based on obedience. Not feelings, not emotions. We're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When the Christian is rejoicing in the Lord, he is rejoicing in God's love for him. Regarding their past first, as God forgave them for their sins, give them eternal life and bringing them through the difficulties. As you reflect upon that. Then regarding the present, as God is patient, forgiving, compassionate, and strengthening the believer through life and to use them. Then regarding the future, as God has promised to present the believer faultless, glorifying him to one day reign with Jesus. Our past, our present, our future relationship. Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength in Nehemiah 8.10. You know that was under difficult circumstances in Nehemiah's day. Very difficult circumstances. Jude puts it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude verse 21. There's only one chapter. When the Christian is not yielding, to God's agape love, he has no joy because the fellowship of love is broken by sin often. Isaiah 59 1 says, God's hands not short that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your senses separate you from God, as you go on to verse 2. And he doesn't hear us, he turns his back on them. There's a cutoff when there's sin, there's no more joy. 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sexual sin, jealousy, envy, 
or unforgiveness resulting in resentment, bitterness, and hatred, rebellion. All these things are like a domino. If you just push the first one, it's going to hit the next one. They just follow one at a time. Ephesians 4, 30, 32 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Um, and be kind to one another, tender heart, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Wow. So as God has done to you and God has done to me, I am responsible to, to others. See, I like getting it this way. I don't know about going it that way. That's where we get in trouble. God's love results in peace and maturity. First John four seventeen through 19 says, um, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, uh, freedom of speech, literally, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in Love, the perfect love, casts out all fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love. We love him because he first loved us. And that's why cultivating that relationship with Jesus Christ from day to day, just like a husband cultivates his love for his wife and the wife for the husband. If you don't cultivate it, if you don't um, realize what how blessed you are to have the other person then you take each other for granted and then you think that you deserve better and you think that you've got short change and you before you know it you are all messed up that cultivation that walking every day when the christian yields to god's love joy follows listen to uh, colossians 3:12 on down, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But, above all these things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. When a person is thankful, they reflect upon how good they have it, how good God has been, how good God has taken care of them, how blessed they are and who they are, what they have. The whole society and culture pits us to be unthankful, to be ungrateful to be entitled, to think we deserve much more, whatever it may be. That's the flesh. You take, give them an inch, they'll take a foot, then a mile. Jesus indicates obedience to love for him and abiding in his love is how we have joy. In John 15, 10 through 11, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full, complete. Jesus also taught 
that joy at times comes through suffering. John 16, 20 through 22, he's getting ready to go to Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed. The cross is before him. Listen to him. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no, no one will take from you. There's joy that comes through great sorrow, ladies and gentlemen. Through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the Christian is to be known for having joy. Secondly, the beginning of verse 5. The Christian is to be known for being gracious. Listen to his words. Let your, great, your gentleness be known to all men. The Apostle Paul charged the believer to be known for being a Christian. That's what he's saying. Paul wanted the lives of the Philippians to be recognized by others as different from what they used to be in the past. The word order here in the Greek is different. The phrase is, let be known. It's all one word, and it comes after gentleness. So the syntax, the grammar order is different. The Greek word is gnosko. We've mentioned it before. It means to know by experience. Not just gnosis, knowledge, but by experience. You put the two together. This is another imperative command. But in the era's past, is something that occurred in the past to bring a change in their life. The word is used in different ways in the scriptures. For Joseph knowing by experience Mary sexually in Matthew 1.25 after the birth of Jesus. For knowing a tree by experiencing the fruit in Matthew 12.33. For who knew God by experience, but glorified him not as God. For those in Romans 1, 21. Paul wanted that each believer yield to God in order to experience personally God working in and through them. That's always the way God does it. First in me, then through me. Often people want to be used by God through me, but they don't want God to work in them. It, it, it doesn't work that way. That their lives be a living epistle to all who observe their life uh, and the conduct of their life. Because people will see you a lot louder than they hear you. You're a walking epistle. To some people... You will never be able to preach the gospel. But they have their eye on you. They're watching you. 
Some of your family members have been watching you for years. And, and many of them watch you to, just to see if they can catch you in something. <laughs> and the minute you blow it, they will be right there. Then how are you going to handle it? Are you going to say, you know what, you're right, I blew it, man, forgive me. Or are you going to make excuses? We'll get all upset. All those things God uses. Family members, close friends. They used to know you for your lack of pity or your indifference. Your moodiness or whatever it is. Now you're different. As Paul is speaking to the Philippians, the pagan society. As they look upon them and they were part of the culture, but they were different. Now they're denying themselves. They're sacrificing for the sake of the good of others. For the less fortunate. For the weak. That wasn't a pagan virtue of that day. But now they're Christians and they're living different. They're responding differently. And some people take notice and God uses that to woo them to the gospel. Others look at that and they just think you're an airhead. It's okay. But they know the difference. Also that they would be an example of a believer to every person they came in contact with from day to day. We get one day at a time, ladies and gentlemen. We cannot undo or go back on that day. So we need to look to the day and make the most of that day as God opens doors. Too often people relate what God is doing or has done in the church body, but they're not partakers personally. They go to a church and God is doing a lot of things and they tell people, oh, we did this, we did that, but they're never involved. They don't do anything. It never happens to them. But they know all about what God is doing in the life of others, but not in them. Again, a farmer must first be a partaker of his fruits or the crops that he's of. Uh, harvesting, Second Timothy two six, and I noted the Apostle Paul charged the believer also to be known for being like their Lord Jesus. So first, as a Christian, you're an individual dependent on Christ, but the model that we're following is the Lord, not anybody else. When people start following a pastor, a group of men. Or somebody else. That's no good. Uh, we should be an example to each other. But we all follow Jesus Christ. Paul is very specific about what he wanted the Philippians to be known for. Their gentleness. There's no one that can exemplify this more than Jesus Christ. Meek and lowly. He, he, a little smoking flax, rather than stepping on it, he would fan it so it would burn. Gentle. The word gentleness means forbearance, reasonableness, or graciousness. It has been called by some, quote, sweet reasonableness. It has to do with not insisting on one's rights, but 
godly responsibility having received grace from God. The word always refers to treatment of others. While meekness is an inner quality, a brokenness, power under control. The word meekness is used and was used for breaking of a wild stallion. Power under control. That speaks inward quality. But this is outwardly how you treat people. Gentleness is in contrast to unreasonable demands by one without the mind of Christ. And when we don't put on the mind of Christ, we can be unreasonable with each other or with others that sometimes our wife, our husband, our children, or even friends, because things have not gone right or I'm upset or whatever it may be. Insisting on justice always and the utmost severe consequences. But if you're being like Christ, then you remember how gracious he's been to you. Forgetting how gracious and kind Jesus was with them. Because they see themselves apart from others. And they can understand why God loved them, but they can't understand why God would love that other person. It's always interesting that our sin always looks a lot uglier on others than it does on us, right? There's always a reason why we did it, but others. And that's that whole flesh, that whole perspective of, uh, of seeing ourselves apart from what God says we really are, that we're saved by grace and we don't deserve heaven. And we are so, so fortunate. Jesus was gracious to all, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler, the prostitute at Simon's house, and many, many others. Um, I mean, if you were God and you came down to earth, would you hang out with the people he did? Would you have been born where he chose to be born? Would you allow the people to treat you the way he allowed people to treat him? Of course not. Of course not. Notice Paul recognized that once a person experiences God's sweet reasonableness of graciousness, they should be as gracious to others, putting on the mind of Christ. The only way it can happen. He's already talked about it. By God's divine love, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Also, by God's divine nature, in Philippians 2 there, verse 3 and 4 that follows, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only on his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So there's nothing wrong in taking care of yourself and the things that you have to, but you don't live for yourself. 
you have to care for yourself, you have to take a shower, you have to brush your teeth, you have to, you know, take iron your clothes and, and the necessary things, but you don't focus on yourself, you don't live for yourself, you're not your whole world. That's what he's talking about. But also by recognizing that men were instruments and vessels of God regarding the gospel. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 8, it says, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believe? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But it's God who does everything. What do you have that you've not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? Paul says also to the Corinthians. The extent for their gentleness is to be known to all men. All, everyone, without exception. All are dead in trespass and sins in need of salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. All are loved by God, and Jesus died on the cross, John 3, 16, for the whole world. Not only the Christian, but all men, saved and unsaved, are to know and experience through our lives the grace and the love of God. In the reference to men there is anthropos, referring to the human race, every human being. You get your word anthropology from it, the study of man. Be they male or female, be they Jew or Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, bond or free, according to the categories of that day. Today, white, black, whatever. All these things and labels that the uh, educators and the politicians use to pit you against one another. If you're a Christian, you should never allow anybody to divide you as a Christian on the carnal categories that they do every day today, viciously. Economic, race, and your perspective on politics. You have the freedom. Our nation has never experienced what they're experiencing right now. It's always been the land of free and the brave. Anybody can speak whatever they want. They can believe whatever they want. They can discuss it. They can get into a debate. But push comes to shove, you can believe that. Today, there's an intimidation. There's a bullying. Exactly what they're accusing others, they are doing it. The educators being top on the food chain. And the politicians know how to use those things to work for their power. If you're a Christian, you should never fall prey to that. Ever. You're first a Christian. Number one. David is a great example of graciousness by personal experience as he... Um, Restored, if you remember, all that belonged to Mephibosheth, who was the crippled son of Saul. 
instead of demanding justice in 2 Samuel 9. As Mephibosheth just came in dragging his foot because he was crippled. And he had been hiding on load the bar. And he asked, is there anybody of Saul's house left? Yeah, Mephibosheth, well, bring him in. And David blessed him with all that was his. Wow. God would have each of us to be gracious after the example of the early church when things are not the most favorable. Peter um, preached forgiveness of sins to the Jews who rejected and crucified Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Stephen preached repentance to the Jews who stoned him to death in Acts 7. Philip preached to the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And there are many other examples that we can go through. Jesus taught in the parable of the unforgiving servant the importance of being gracious to others. If you remember in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And in that parable, some have received much grace by the great debt that God has forgiven them. But they are not willing to forgive others on lesser debts or failures. And you know what that master said, you evil servant. God will require the compassion he has given to you and I regarding and imparting it to others when it is asked of us because freely we have received and freely we are to give. That means it brings me to the end of myself. I cannot do any of that. I don't want to do it. I cannot do it. I don't even want to go there. Unless I depend upon Jesus Christ, I will not be able to do it. So this is beyond my ability. This is out of my natural realm completely. It brings you and me to the end of ourselves all the time. Jesus would have all of us to make known the sweet reasonableness of God's graciousness to others. Our responsibility is to pray for all men in authority, as 1 Timothy 2.1 says. And the reason is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter 3.9. That's why we preach Christ freely. So the Christian is to be known for being gracious. Third and last notice, the rest of five, the Christian is to be known for the Lord's coming. The Apostle Paul revealed the powerful motivation to live a life of being gracious. You ready? Listen. The Lord is near. Wow. Paul used this phrase to indicate the coming of Jesus for the church. This is the context. As he has consistently used it through the epistle. In chapter 1, verse 6, you remember he was confident that he who had begun a good work in him was going to complete the day of Christ. That's the rapture. In chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he prayed their love would abound still more, more in knowledge and all the sermon, 
to approve the things that are excellent, that they might be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. That's the rapture. He said our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20. We just saw two studies, goes two, three studies ago. That's the rapture. Paul is using this phrase not to refer to the presence of Jesus in our midst right now or in the midst of the Philippians and their lives, but the literal coming. That is the context. The context is wrong when people say that it's talking about Jesus being in the midst of us and we should be aware of that. That's what it's, he's not talking about that here. The other times Paul mentions the Lord's coming in the letter referred to the rapture of his church that I just read to you, all of them. Now notice the Apostle Paul believed in the doctrine of eminence then as the nature of his coming for his church prior to the seven-year tribulation and great tribulation. If he believes in the rapture, then he believes in the doctrine of eminence, that he can come back at any time. And that's the way the Christians live as we read the New Testament. Jesus gave many um, parables of the evil steward who did not know the time of his master's return and was found drinking and mistreating his servants, as you know. The words of Jesus were, Pray and watch that you may be ready to escape all these things that will be accounted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. In Luke twenty-one thirty-six. Jesus said, No man knows the day or the hour. He's speaking to the Jews in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six. What is the day and the hour? The beginning of the day of the Lord. What happens then? The church is removed. But he doesn't mention the rapture because the Jew goes through the tribulation. He's talking to the Jew in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 25 is talking about the second coming. But no man knows the day of the Lord, the beginning of the seven years. That's the context. A lot of confusion about Matthew 24, 25. People have it all messed up. Our bodies will be changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last drum. Not to be confused with the seven trump of revelation. A lot of people are confusing a lot of the stuff in revelation and they're putting it now with these uh, blood moons and the uh, eclipse and these uh, tornadoes and, and the hurricanes and everything that's going on in these storms. And people are doing newspaper sensational prophetic interpretation. They're false prophets. You cannot take the things in Revelation chapter 6 to 18 and put them now completely out of context. The last trumpet of Corinthians and Thessalonians is not the last trumpet of the book of Revelation. Completely different. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, you know that it mentions the Lord's imminent return Chapter 1, verse 10, 2, 19, 3, 13, 4, 17, and 5, 9. Every chapter mentions the Lord coming for his church before 
the wrath of God is poured out. The early church, the church fathers, and the reformers all believe in the imminent return of Jesus. John clearly shows that after the church age is over in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church is present in heaven, and in chapter 4 and 5, the church is singing a song that only the church can sing right before the tribulation begins and the man of sin is revealed in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. The day of the second coming is given by Daniel. 1,290 days from the abomination of desolation, the middle of the tribulation, Daniel 12, 11, and Jesus said that in Matthew 24, 15. The day of the rapture, no man knows. Therefore, we are to watch and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all those things that I said in Luke 21, 36. Only Luke refers to us to pray and watch and be worthy. Have you ever wondered why? Simple. Matthew wrote to the Jews who will go through the great tribulation. The tribulation and great tribulation is to prepare the Jew for their Messiah, the remnant. Mark wrote to the Romans who, for the most part, denied and crucified Jesus. Luke wrote to the Greeks, and God would call the Greek or the Gentiles as part of his bride. Jew and Gentile one. The disciples could not grasp, as you know, that Jesus was leaving and returning for his church in the air. They were Jews. They were expecting the earthly kingdom. The Jews saw the present age, the age to come. The present age, evil. Rome over Israel. Age to come, the Messiah comes, knocks out the power of Rome, sets up the kingdom. They had a Jewish mind. They had to be persuaded and taught by Jesus Christ. So he told them, stop, if you believe, stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you there, I will be also. And I will come back to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You must make the distinction between him receiving us to himself and we coming back with him. First Thessalonians, he comes back for us. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him. Okay? Don't confuse him. By the way, after the resurrection, when Jesus was speaking to them for 40 days... When they first saw him again, said, now, now you, are you now going to restore? He said, none of your business. Just go away. Because <laughs> they had the Jewish mind. A man asked a young boy, why do you keep looking out the window? The boy said, because my dad told me, watch and be ready. Simple. Now, do you believe what Jesus said? He said, watch and be ready. Don't be distracted. Don't be blinded. Don't be deceived. The nature of the church is in contrast to Israel. Remember that. The church is made of a Jew and Gentile who have accepted Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Israel is made up of Jews and some proselytes. 
big difference. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 and Colossians 3, 11. The church was a mystery concealed in the Old Testament. Not that Gentiles would not be blessed in salvation, but that Jew and Gentile would be made one in Christ Jesus, the body of the church. Romans 16, 25 through 27, Ephesians 3, 1 through 7, and many, many others. Jew and Gentile one. The church is called the bride of Christ, a virgin. Israel is called a wife of God who has been put away by divorce because of her spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 3, 1. Don't confuse a woman who has been married, consummated her, uh, her, her celebration, the honeymoon night, and been divorced. Don't confuse her with a virgin bride looking for a wedding. There's a big difference. Those attempting to make the woman in the book of Revelation, the church, have a bigger problem due to the fact that she's pregnant and the church is a virgin, Revelation 12.4. Israel gives birth to the Messiah. He's caught up to heaven. So... You cannot make the woman in the book of Revelation 12.4 be the church. Impossible. The church is being built by Jesus Christ, as you know, because Jesus rejected Israel until the church is closed. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in Matthew 16.18. The Gentiles were grafted in like a wild olive branch, as you know, the olive tree in Romans 11, 11 through 14. The Lord in his triumphal entry drew near to Jerusalem. He wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that were made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he pronounced judgment over her in Luke 19, 42 through 44. Fulfilling it to the day, 483 years to the day, 173,880 days. March 14, 445 B.C., landing on April the 6th, 32 A.D., based on the 360 biblical year, which, by the way, is recorded as such in Genesis, fulfilling Daniel 924 through 26 and Zechariah 99, just to mention a few. Amazing. Jesus wept. He says, Your house is left to you desolate. You shall not see me hence until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. The next thing on the schedule, ladies and gentlemen, is the rapture of the church. Make no mistake of that. The apostles in the first church council gave witness to the basic simple truth from the mouth of James. Listen to Acts 15, 13 through 17. He says, Simon declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, that's Israel, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up again so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. So the church right now, Israel then. The rapture of the church is the blessed hope. Titus 2.13. The promise of the church of Thyatira is, and I give her time to repent, 
for her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into the bed, a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation, lest they repent of their deeds. Revelation two twenty one through twenty six. That's the part of the church that will go through the tribulation, the one that doesn't repent. The promise of the church of Philadelphia is because you have kept my command, persevere, I also will keep you from the hour, the article there, of the trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, Revelation 3.10. I'm a heavenly citizen. The promise of the church of Laodicea is I know your works, that you may neither, you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, Revelation 3.15 and 16. There you have. Where do you stand? Are you lukewarm or are you on fire? I hope you're looking for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. James says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so the Christian is to be known for the Lord's coming for his church. Wow. What an exhortation to believers to yield to God in order to manifest virtues of the Spirit of God in their life here. These three. The Christian is to be known for having joy. The Christian is to be known for being gracious. And the Christian is to be known for the Lord coming for his church. Is that you? Does that describe you? It's supposed to, as well as myself. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts. And the Lord, we will look to you. Help us in our weaknesses. Help us with our sin nature that we not yield to it, Lord, that we walk in your spirit, that we look to you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. As you're out there on the internet or even the radio, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, wherever you are in the world. If you call on the name of the Lord, knowing that he died for you and rose from the dead, he will forgive you and make a new creature of you by grace through faith. And he will put this joy in your heart. He will make you more like him. And he will put a burning passion for you to look for his coming. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right where you sit or wherever you are in the world. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.